So what we got is uh, the chapter 44 in uh, Genesis, and it's about uh, <coughs> Joseph and his brothers. But I wanted to go back a little bit, and uh, I'm going to bring in some of, my, some of my dead relatives that I read from, and uh, Schaefer and Tozer and Calvin and Spurgeon are the ones that I'm referring to today. And uh, I had a little trouble figuring out this story uh, that we're going to go through because it's, to me, it looks like it's kind of a soap opera and then it, it comes to the ending and the chapter quits. And so you're going to have to tune in next week to find the ending of this, this story. <laughs> okay, the first question I've got on there is the sovereignty of God. And uh, that's one of the issues that I'm kind of big on. And uh, the reason I bring it up is because the God's sovereignty appears throughout the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He steps through everything that they do. Everything they do is directed by God. And who is in charge? God is in charge. The problem with that is it is extremely controversial in the church. As to where everybody wants to say God is sovereign, but then when it comes down to the details, well, no, he doesn't come and handle that, and he doesn't handle this, and, and people do this. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, the issue in the Garden of Eden was who is sovereign? Is God sovereign or are people autonomous? And the people wanted to become autonomous. They wanted to know the good, how to determine good and evil in the Garden of Eden instead of relying on God to do that for them. And so you ended up with... The, the mankind wants to be autonomous and God wants to be sovereign and you can't have it both ways. You can't have somebody autonomous and somebody sovereign. Or you can't have two sovereigns if you want to put it that way. So it is an issue. And like I said, it goes clear back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Spurgeon has a couple sermons that he preaches on this and I just got one little line from one of his sermons. There is no doctrine more hated by unbelievers no truth which they have kicked about so much as the great stupendous but yet certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. And that was 170 years ago that he wrote that. By the way, his sermons are about eight pages long, so if you ever want to read one, you've got to take some time. He didn't give 15-minute sermons. He gave one-hour sermons at least, and he did it impromptu. <coughs> The verse I've got on there is Romans 8.28. That's one of my favorite verses. God, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that is the life of Joseph. All things work together with Joseph's life as he's come up to this point. He was a 17-year-old kind of obnoxious boy as a shepherd. And his brothers tried to kill him, sold him into slavery. He went down into one of these pits that uh, Pastor Audie's got on the board there, worked his way, God took him through that, then he ended up in jail, and God took him through that. But I'm wondering, after reading it a couple of times, if Potiphar was that mad at him. I'm not sure Potiphar believed his wife, because he was the steward in Potiphar's house, and then he got thrown into jail. But Potiphar, Run, ran the jail, and he made Joseph the steward of the jail. So he was the top man. He ran, he was the top man in the jail. I'm not sure Potiphar was that upset with him. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't have done that. But anyway, he goes there, and then he interprets the dreams, and then all of a sudden, this 17-year-old boy becomes the prime minister, I guess you'd call it, of Egypt, which is the most powerful country in the world. He was 30 years old when he became prime minister, so he spent 13 years training. God trained him for 13 years in slavery, as a, as a steward, and in prison. And then he became, and the shepherd boy becomes prime minister. Moses, by the way, spent 40 years in training. So maybe he was a slower learner, I'm not sure. <laughs> he was in the desert for 40 years. And uh, I hate to say it, but uh, I'm still in training, and it's been over 80 years. And so, <laughs> as these people come, as the brothers come to visit Joseph, it's been 22 years since they sold him into slavery. So Joseph is not a youngster. He's, he's about 40, 39 or 40 years old when this takes place. And of course, his brothers are all older than him, so they're in the, you know, the 40, 55 age group because they are all quite a bit older than Joseph. And his younger brother is probably 25 or something like that, Benjamin. His younger brother is probably about 25. So this just puts him in, in perspective. Now, the story that we're going to go through is really strange, and, it, and it, uh, I don't understand why they booked the chapter. Back in about 1550, they decided to put chapters and verses in the Bible. Before that, it read straight through. But the, about 1550, somewhere in that time frame, somebody decided to put chapters and verses. And some of these chapter breaks don't make much sense. And some of the verse breaks don't make such sense. Because in the Greek, you've got one verse that goes from verse 13 to ver uh, verse 3 to verse 14 is all one sentence. And it's 10 verses in, the, in our scripture. So it, 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 you've got to be aware of what's happening to you. My question here is, why, what was Joseph doing with this, uh, you know, planting evidence in his brother's sacks of, of grain and stuff? And uh, what was the purpose of it? What was he trying to bring out? Was it a test of his brother's characters? Or were they, were they going to be willing to leave Benjamin there as a slave <coughs> as they had sold Joseph earlier? If so, I suspect Joseph would have kept Benjamin there and taken care of him very well and let the brothers go back home. He didn't want anything to do with them if they were still the evil people that had sold him into slavery 20 years before. Or had they really changed? So me, to me, after I read through it and through it and through it and I read some commentaries, uh, it looked like Joseph was testing them to see if they had really changed their, their, their attitudes and their, their being. So we'll get down to the Verse now of, of uh, chapter 44. Now, Joseph, this is after they had eaten a meal with Joseph, uh, I guess the day before. And uh, he had, this is the second time they've come to visit him. Oh, by the way, I am curious as to how Joseph knew his brothers were coming. Because I am sure there were thousands of people coming to Egypt to buy grain. This is a famine time. And how did Joseph pick those people out, because he didn't know them. He had been there 20 years. He'd been prime minister for nine years. So it had to be providence, once again, God acting, that would point out these 10 brothers, these 10 people, and all of a sudden Joseph realized they're his brothers. 
because, like I said, there had to be thousands of people coming there to buy grain because it was an area-wide famine. So now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of the sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain, as he did, and he did as Joseph said. Why would he put the, the chalice in Benjamin's sack? Anybody got any ideas? Why would he pick on Benjamin? If I was going to pick on somebody, I'd have picked the oldest one, but he picked the youngest one. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the reason why he did that is his, his father had favored him, and he was the youngest at that point. And so here comes the youngest again, and Jacob was the youngest. So it's maybe a pattern. Yeah, yeah. They were the two favorite sons, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, uh, <clears throat> to me, I think he wanted to do that because if it turns out those guys were bad, still bad, he wanted to make sure Benjamin stayed behind rather than going back with him. So he put the chalice in Benjamin's uh, bag so that make sure that he could have a reason to keep him behind. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had gone not far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. Isn't this the cup my master drinks? Uh, in, in other words, this is a personal insult to Joseph. That's what they're, what they're getting at here. It is the master's special cup, and to steal it would be a personal insult to him, which makes it a much worse than just a regular thief. And also uses for divination. We don't know whether Joseph used divination, but I'm sure the, the Egyptians thought he did, because he was the one that interpreted dreams and things like that. And for them, they would use a cup of divination to interpret dreams. By the way, the way they do this, they would put water in the cup, and then they'd put stuff in the water, and it's sort of like reading tea leaves. And so they would sit there and stir it around, and then they'd forecast the future by reading tea leaves, and good luck on that. <laughs> but anyway, they believed in it, and uh, I'm sure they thought Joseph did it. We don't know that Joseph did it. We don't know that he didn't do it. He may have done it just to get along with them, for all I know. When uh, the steward caught up with him, he repeated these words to him. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Cana the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would you steal silver and gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it in it, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slave. I'll stop there for a minute. This is the brothers giving them their own sentence, and they don't realize, of course, that the cup is in Benjamin's bag, but they're saying, if you find it, kill Benjamin, and we'll all become slaves. So they're harsher on themselves than even the steward is. Very well, then, said, said the servant. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave, but, and the rest of you will be free to blame. In other words, he says, we're not going to kill anybody. We're just going to keep them here as slaves. And the brothers 
or making a protest of their innocence here, saying, we even brought back the money from before, so why would we steal again? So each of them quickly lowered the sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. And of course, the, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes, and they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. By the way, people were tearing their clothes quite a bit in those days, evidently, because it keeps showing up in Scripture, and it must have, there must have been a lot of wardrobes torn in half. <laughs> Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves on the ground before him. Does this remind you of something of Joseph's dream earlier in his life when the brothers were all bowing down to him? Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know a man like me can find things out through divination? And of course they found the cup in Benjamin's sack, and they could not afford, he was the one person they couldn't afford to leave behind. When Judah came in, it appears that Judah has been taking leadership role in the family. How come? How come Judah would be the leader in the family? The test of their character was now before them. Would they sacrifice Benjamin to save their own skins? Why Judah? Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were both older than Judah. So why is Judah the spokesman? Because in their culture, the oldest was always the spokesman. But what happened earlier, much earlier in Genesis, Reuben had disqualified himself by shacking up with one of Jacob's concubines. Simeon and Levi had slaughtered a village uh, because they had raped their sister and so made Jacob's family an anathema to the Canaanites because of the slaughter of the village. So the three had kind of disqualified themselves as leaders. Also, Reuben had tried to, when they went back for the second time in chapter 42, when they got ready to go back, he tried to give Jacob the promise that he would be responsible for Benjamin, and he was dismissed by Jacob. And so when Judah did it, Jacob accepted it. So Jacob no longer trusted Reuben. And so now we end up with Judah as the spokesman. What can we say, my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now your Lord's slave. We, observe, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. God has uncovered the servant's guilt. By the way, I noticed the pastor put, they used the term Elohim, but you've got to remember, God's name wasn't known at this time. God didn't reveal his name until Moses was before the burning bush. Moses is writing this, but he... The, the people there wouldn't know the name of God at this time. And so Elohim was the standard word for the, uh, any God. So Joseph says, only the man that, that took the cup will be my, become my slave. Now, Judah, who was promised not only his life, but his children's life to vouch for bringing Benjamin back from this trip to Jacob, now he's in trouble. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. 
my Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's son left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. We said to the Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And when he went back to his servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. If you're confused with the way this is written, I don't blame you. I, there's so many servants' names being used in here, it's tough to figure out who's doing the talking. But it's, it's uh, Judah explaining to Joseph what he had uh, dealt with with Jacob as far as bringing Benjamin to the, uh, Egypt. And then the father finally said they got hungry because they didn't have any food. Buy a little more food. But we said we cannot go down. Only if our youngest son is with us will we go down. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. In other words, they could not go to Joseph, and Joseph wouldn't sell him anything unless the younger brother was with him. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my, wa my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. This is Judah telling Jacob that Joseph had been torn to pieces, which was nothing but a big lie. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray hair down to a grave in mis mis misery. I've put in there, my wife bore me two sons. His wives and concubines bore him 10 sons, but the only two that he counted, this is Joseph, uh, Jacob, the only two that he counted was Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Ra uh, Rachel, because Rachel was the wife that was loved. Leah was not loved, and of course the other two were maids concubines. So as far as Jacob was concerned, he only had one wife. And so it shows the favoritism that Jacob had shown to these sons. And of course that probably spurred the anger against the, by the other brothers against Jacob. And the anger, evidently, Jacob, uh, Joseph was worried would be uh, taken out against Benjamin at the same time because he was a favored son. So he wanted to save Benjamin if he could. And of course, next we have the lie, and I said he has been torn to pieces. <coughs> Judah indirectly confesses his own sin in getting rid of Joseph and how he deceived the father. And of course, he's telling this to Joseph, not realizing it. He's telling Joseph, you're dead and not realizing he's talking to Joseph. Of course, it's been, like I said, 22 years. Joseph's probably robed in Egyptian garb and probably face painting that the Egyptians used. He's not realizing he's talking to Joseph. He sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Now, inflation set in, and 2,000 years later, they sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But only that much inflation in 2,000 years. I wish we had that to deal with. So now if a boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my, in other words, he's saying, my father is also your servant because 
uh, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's prime minister is really kind of the leading uh, ruler in the whole world at this time, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life. In other words, he's my favorite son now and sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, I will, if I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. In other words, and he had also pledged his sons uh, at the same time. And so now Judah is worried about his own skin because he knows when he goes home uh, without Benjamin, his father's going to die. I'm not sure he's concerned about his father so much as he is about himself. My father, whose life is closely bound to Benjamin, he will die. Judah throws himself on the mercy of, of Joseph. Now, then please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brother, with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. Once again, I'm saying Judah is worried about Judah seeing the mis misery that comes to his father. He's not worried about his father dying. He's worried about him suffering from the misery of it, it's, it which, which strikes me as, as strange. In other words, uh, you would think he'd be worried about the life of his father, and he's not worried. He's worried about his own skin. No, don't let me see the misery. Offering to take Benjamin's place, Judah appears to be sacrificial, but he does not want to face his father with failure. I think it's, it's a little bit of both. He doesn't want to, but he's worried also. Uh, he Well, they have a guilt feeling. The uh, brothers now feel guilty. They realize something's gone wrong, and uh, they're still feeling guilty from the sailor sailing, selling uh, Joseph. And they still felt guilty 17 years later with the death of, J of Jacob. When Jacob died, and uh, then the brothers came to Joseph, who they knew at that time, and were worried that Joseph was going to take retribution against him. And Joseph says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So once again, Joseph has forgiven him. So with Judah pledging to take uh, I'll take the, the penalty. I think Joseph finally figures out maybe they've changed. They aren't the same guys that sold him into slavery 20 years earlier. That's the end of the chapter. Like I said, you don't know what happens next. It's sort of like a soap opera, you know, the, where the announcer gets up there, will Benjamin be put to death? Will Benjamin be made a slave? <laughs> well, what happens to, to Jacob and Joseph in this story? And you know, I, I'm saying, whoever put the, the chapter break at that portion, I have no idea, but they did. And there's a couple other places that I debate with the sen sensibility of the guys that put chapters and verses in the Bible. Any question? That's the story for the chapter. Any question? Yeah. Well, I just I think it's interesting how he talks about if they can't take Benjamin back, they're going to misery that will come upon their father. But they didn't think about the, the misery that their father would have when they drugged that 
you know, the coat back that's all bloody. Oh, yeah. And yeah. talking about how, you know, Joseph obviously was ripped to shreds by an animal. They didn't think about that misery would befall on their father. Well, this also shows maybe they've changed a little bit. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't care about the father 20 years earlier. And they're, I'm not sure they're caring that much about him. I don't know if they changed that much, but uh, they have changed. And so Joseph will see it. And like I said, come back next week and you find out the end of the story. Or you could actually read the next chapter. And <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions on this? I was something else I want to cover. So, uh, okay, when I was, oh, about 25 years ago, I was, in Greenville, South Carolina, and I had a pastor there who was a teacher of Old Testament uh, at a seminary. And he said to me, in every book of the Old Testament, you can find traces of Jesus. In other words, throughout the whole Testament, there is, it points and points to Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to the cross eventually. And so he, he would, when he'd give a sermon, and he'd take an Old Testament passage, he would end up talking about Jesus. Well, I looked at that and I said, what about Genesis? Okay, where's Christ in Genesis? And I looked at it and I said, in Genesis 3, they have what is called the Protoevangelum, which is the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will, the serpent will strike the heel. But that is called the Protoevangelum. In other words, the prototype of the good news. In other words, the serpent is going to be destroyed. Okay, and I didn't put this on your thing, but the next one I came up with was Noah's Ark. And you say, well, that's a big boat. But uh, Noah's Ark, the Ark itself was covered with pitch. And uh, the word for pitch is also used in covering on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so the Ark, saved the eight people from the wrath of God, the wrath of God being the flood. So now you've got the ark saving you from the wrath of God. Christ saves us from the wrath of God. When we're redeemed, we're not redeemed from this, that, and the other. We're redeemed from God himself because it's God's wrath that we are redeemed from. Okay. In Genesis 22, you've got Isaac, the only begotten son of... Uh, of uh, of Abraham, the only begotten son of Abraham, because God doesn't count Ishmael. And he offers him for a sacrifice on a mountain. He takes him up there, he straps him in, and he gets ready to kill him, and God stops him right then and there. That is very similar to the crucifixion of Christ, except in the case of Isaac, God stopped the knife from dropping. In the case of Jesus, the knife, fell, the knife fell and Jesus was killed. By the way, the Mount Moriah, where they went to do this, is thought to be either the Temple Mount or Mount Calvary. So it was done 2,000 years earlier. Strange that God would do that, you know. He might have known 2,000 years ahead of time that his son was going to be crucified on this mountain. And he gave you a prototype of it in the sacrifice of Isaac. The life of the life of Joseph himself. Okay, Joseph was the favorite son. Joseph was betrayed by his family and sold and was sold into the hands of the Gentiles to be killed. Christ 
was betrayed by his people and sold into the, or given to the hands of the Gentiles to be sacrificed on a cross. Joseph was, went through his training program and was raised to the right hand of the power of, of Egypt, the power of the world at that time. Christ, of course, is ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the power of, of the universe. So you've got a parallel there. And Joseph, while he was ruling, uh, gave what some people call common grace, some people call universal blessings, to all the nations around Egypt. In other words, he sold grain, to, he saved the grain and sold it to all the nations around there. And then he gave special grace to his family. In other words, his chosen ones, they got the grain free. So Joseph, his, his actions are, are, you could put it in a parallel to the common grace of God and the special grace of God to his chosen people, chosen people being his church. And of course, the actions of Joseph, when you see the hand of God in this, he brought the people from Cana to the land of Goshen, the 80 people. Now, there was more than 80. There must have been a couple hundred servants that took care of the flocks, but it was 80 of Jacob's family. And in, Go in Goshen, they were protected for 400 years so they could multiply into the nation of Israel because they were protected by the power of Egypt. If they had stayed in Cana, it had already been shown that they were busy intermingling with the nations around them. And uh, uh, Jacob, uh, yeah, no, Judah had married a Canaanite woman. Uh, another time they were starting to try to intermarry with the people and God kept them separate. He kept moving them uh, so that they stayed separate in Cana. But to leave them there for 400 years while they multiplied, he took them to Goshen where they were despised by the Egyptians, so the Egyptians didn't bother them because they were shepherds, and that was, shepherds were the lowest class in the Egyptian society. So they had freedom to grow into a nation there. So the whole story of Joseph shows the providence of God and how he is building the, the Israelites. And if you wanted to go to look at other books in the Old Testament, the whole book of the, of the sacrificial systems in Leviticus and, and, and uh, Exodus shows a pre-parallel pre, uh, pre, uh, to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, in other words, Christ. And you go through all of the books, and for instance, the book of Ruth, the, she is redeemed by Boaz, and Christ, of course, is our Redeemer. So you can go through all the books, and I haven't gone through all of them, so I don't know if this guy was right, but his name was Latimer, and his great ancestor was Hugh Latimer, who Mary, Bloody Mary, Queen of Scots, burned at the stake during the English Re uh, Reformation. So he had, he had some experience with Christianity. <laughs> Pastor, yeah, I think I'm done. <laughs> Unless somebody wants to ask a question or tell me I'm all wrong. <laughs> can we uh, can we thank him for his? Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, the thing I like about Bob is that he reads all these ancient guys that uh, 
that I don't uh, really get into too much. So thank you so much for that. Um, I had never thought about um, the idea of Jesus and Joseph because most of my thinking was the parallel of Moses and, uh, and Jesus. Um, and often, in the, even in the New Testament, it talks about you know, the uh, bronze snake and some of those different ways that those parallels show up. So I so appreciated um, a few weeks ago when, when uh, Bob uh, uh, mentioned this after class one day about Jesus and Joseph and what, what, a, great, uh, what a great parallel to that. So uh, very awesome. Any, um, any other thoughts that you might have had while, uh, uh, of course, I had a million thoughts while you were talking, but uh, anybody else have any thoughts about, about any of that, the parallels? Yeah, Janet. You mentioned every book points to Jesus. I went to a Seder. Uh, and the Jewish rabbi said the same thing. He said the all through the Old Testament mm-hmm. points to the birth of Jesus. Yeah, that's pretty good coming from a Jewish yeah. rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. Rabbi, they, Jews for Jesus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jews for Jesus. Yeah. But even that, it points to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're still waiting. The Jews are still waiting for the yeah. Messiah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. But not that group. Yeah. <laughs> The Jews for Jesus have connected the dots. They have connected the dots. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's a great point. Yeah. You you know, the other thing I appreciated about what you said was, um, because I hadn't thought about how old Joseph was when kind of all of this was happening, that, that he had had a lot happen to him by the age of 17, and then 30 is kind of when he became the... Yeah. Well, that's that says a lot. He would have been... I guess he would have been an older millennial in those days. That's <laughs> kind of what he would have been, maybe a little bit of a Gen X. So quite, a, quite an accomplishment at, uh, at that early age. Yeah. But the thing I was kind of thinking about with respect to that, and you had mentioned this, that when he was very young that he was kind of arrogant and sort of full of himself. And what made me think about that was that because he was given that we talked about the promise, you know, in the form of that vision, um, that when a person at a very young age is given that sort of gift of a vision of something uh, that's going to happen later, it would be very easy for that person to conclude that he was quite special. Yeah. And so how do you, and maybe we could think about this, is how do you keep from thinking that you're special even if God or somebody else tells you that you're special. Does that make sense? That how do you keep that from going to your head? And I think when you look at everything he went through after that, that was God's way of training. You had mentioned that he had been in training for 17 years, that that's how God, that's how God did that, is that, that he gave him the promise, he gave him the vision, but he said, I don't want you to go, I don't want this to go to your head. So I'm going to take you through this journey, and it's not going to be an easy one. In fact, it's going to have a lot of betrayal and injustice, that kind of thing in it. And when, when you see Joseph at the end of the story, which as you well pointed out, we haven't yet seen the end of the story, um, is that uh, he's a different person in his temperament and his attitude. He knows that God is special. He's not the one that's special. And what a transformative uh, change that is. So, awesome stuff. All right. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Any other thoughts before we uh, end for today? 
question. It's yes. not out on class since we weren't in here, but just for the sake of everybody knowing, Triton is being deployed for the Allen. They are bringing. Who, who is where? Because there's not a church per se. Are they doing it? Oh, they're oh at High Point Baptist. Okay, fantastic. Bonnie is coming in. Uh, Pax and Phoebe, I think, and we haven't heard which dogs, but they are making a deployment okay. out of it. So I, will be I had mentioned that before class, but it was pretty fluid, so I didn't know what. Uh, Catherine and Amy are going out this afternoon, the evening, and then okay. teams will be floating around in and out. Yeah. They're going to take the crosses of compassion out to the Allen okay. Mall, and Good. they'll be out there. So. Well, how fortuitous that. Um, we have our ministry here. We just never thought that we would have to do it like 10 miles up the road. You know, you think of Uvalde and, and all those other places that are far away, but now it's pretty close to home when that starts to happen. So I guess we'll find out more about the why and who and all that kind of thing too. Okay, all right. Well, let's close with, uh, close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the fact that again, we're reminded in the story of Joseph, as we are throughout the, uh, the scriptural narrative, that, uh, that you're, you got the big plan. The, the big plan is and that you're totally in charge and that you uh, govern and guide every step of the way. We're, we're so grateful for that because that, that journey that Joseph went through ultimately preserved uh, God's people. And through God's people, the promise was preserved that brought us the Savior, Jesus Christ. And out of that, each of us benefited from having the gift of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life, and that's what we all wait for. So, uh, so, so we thank you for that, dear Lord, in the stories that we have heard. So we ask that you would continue to remind us that there are so many things that go on in our world today. We think of the folks who are grieving now, the loss of loved ones, and just the shock to our community that felt so, uh, so uh, preserved from all of that that goes on. And here it almost happens right in our backyard. So we pray to your Lord that you remind us that you're still in charge, that you love us, and that nothing in this life can ever change that love. And we're grateful for the people that are caring for those, the, our comfort dog team and the first responders, all the people that are gonna be a part of of restoring the faith and hope and love in our community. So watch over us, dear Lord. Keep us safe until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.